Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. Welcome everybody to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. It is the COVID-19 home quarantine episode. We here in Lee County have been under an advised quarantine for uh, three days now, but the state of Florida officially tonight at midnight, this is Thursday, April 2nd, tonight at midnight, the statewide quarantine goes into effect. We're being told to stay home. Only essential, I haven't started drinking yet, I just cracked it up and haven't had a sip yet. Only essential businesses can be out. And uh, people can only be out doing the essential things that they're supposed to be doing. You know, grocery store, getting medications, going to the bank, etc. And so what a better time to bring you guys more podcasts. And uh, sorry, it's been a while. It's been a few weeks, but you know, I've been trying to line up some good guests, some nice people to talk to. And I have one of those nice people coming up here shortly. But first and foremost, let's get all the uncomfortable things out of the way. And it's time... Well, we're all, you know, some of us may be losing jobs. Some of us may be furloughed. I'm not going to hit you over the head with the t-shirt stuff. I'm not going to ask you to sign up for Patreon, but I am going to say that this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at At Computers. Thank you so much to At Computers for sponsoring this podcast for the last year or so without you guys and the help from the people signing up for Patreon. We wouldn't have the equipment that we have to bring you the podcast that we have, and we definitely wouldn't have the ability to travel to all the events that we travel to. So thank you so much, At Computers, for your continued support of this podcast and all the podcasts on the Digital 410 Network. And for those of you at home, you know the deal. If you need antivirus to secure your computers, At Computers can help you. They want you to back up your stuff, get it safe into the cloud, protect you from hard drive failures, all that stuff. They can help you there. But we're going to we're gonna pass on the hard pitch this week. If you need the services, you know where to go. Act Computers, act-capecrawl.com or 239-283-1120. And as always, they can fix your computer even if you don't live here in town. But, you know, with the way things are going, money's tight. We're all feeling it. We're all going to the grocery store way more than we usually do. Because the kids are eating us out of house and home. We're all there with you. We're all in the same boat or in the same landing craft, if you will. And so, you know, hopefully I can help you pass a little time over the next, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour of this podcast. And if you guys haven't checked out any of the other podcasts here on the Digital 410 Network, go over to d-410.com. You can find the Waterman and D-Train show. You can find the Fail to Fail podcast. And, of course, the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. And if you're looking for some visual entertainment, I just posted on YouTube today, and it's up on the What's the Scuttlebutt Facebook page. I'm doing some home projects around the garage. One of the things we're doing is we're going to create a mobile podcast studio in a crate so that the next time we're out in an event, I don't leave equipment behind. Um, It's going to make for a quicker distribution That's not the word I'm looking for. It's going to make for a quicker setup on site to get the podcast going up and recording. Usually I got to unpack a bunch of stuff, plug things in, hook things up, test things out. My goal is to create a box. All the equipment's already in hooked up. All I got to do is plug in the wall, plug in the microphones, plug it into the laptop and call it done. I'm not finding the right wires, hook up the right equipment, make sure. Because there's usually like 15, 20 pieces of things that need to be hooked up, powered up and sourced out to be it before I can even record. And obviously, when you're at a living history event, you're tired, you already set up a tent, a camp, what have you. It just makes it a lot easier, quicker. If I can find somebody, hey, you interested? Okay, cool. Let's go bust this out. Now, okay, cool. Let me go set up my studio. I'll be back in 30 minutes. So we're going to try to streamline everything and furthermore, make it safer to transport. When you're going out to an event, you got enough stuff to last you a weekend, your, your history display, all your gear, you know, you're... Space is already tight inside your vehicle, and so to find a place that's safe for all your expensive traveling studio equipment, it's just one more hassle to have to deal with. And so the other point to this is it'll be in a nice wooden crate and get banged around a little bit. All the gear will be safe inside, so uh, part one of that video is up right now. Just go to YouTube.com and look for Digital 410, or simply go to d-410.com, click on the YouTube link, and please like, subscribe, ring the bell, and share us with your friends. We are a long way away from our 1,000 subscribers, but we're getting closer by the day. So thank you guys so much. 
And joining us right now via the phones, obviously with uh, social distancing, uh, we here at the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, we practice social distancing with the greatest intent, and that is from Florida to Ohio. He is the uh, public relations specialist for the Goodyear Blimps, for the Goodyear Company, Mr. Ed Ogden. Ed, how are you doing today? Well, I'm doing pretty well. I hope you and your listeners are doing well as also oh, it's well as we can hope to do in times like this um you know yeah being someone who's hosted 60 this is 67 67 episodes of a historical based podcast um outside of obviously the war that we've been in for the last 19 years i never really anticipated living through something that's creating history or living as history is being written my fiance is a school teacher and i was telling her i said you realize in 10, 20 years, they're going to be teaching this, maybe even less, teaching about this whole thing in school. And I just never anticipated being part of history, especially when it came to a worldwide pandemic. And we certainly hope we don't have to, to do this again. Oh, and hopefully um, it passes quickly with the uh, least amount of heartbreak possible, which, I mean, let's be honest, that the numbers we're seeing already, I think, um, sadly, that, that ship has sailed. But uh, let's do the listening audience and ourselves a favor. Let's uh, forget about that for a while and let's get into something, you know, a little more, well, for this audience, a little more comforting. Obviously, there's nothing comforting about the idea of war, but um, I say comforting as in the fact that my listening audience and myself in particular, we take great pride and comfort in the thought and notion of preserving history and educating the younger generation and even our contemporaries who may not be up to speed on the history of World War II and uh, the history of war of the world itself. I mean, we cover many types of topics on this particular podcast, but granted, we do specialize and we try to keep the World War II. And um, I reached out to Goodyear and I was looking for somebody who may have some information they want to share about the um, war contribution of Goodyear to World War II. And uh, you reached it back. You got back with me. In the middle of all this craziness, which first and foremost, let me thank you very much for that. And you said, hey, Don, I know in great detail the history of the blimps, and um, I can present you some of that. And that fit the bill. I explained to you one of the things we like to do here is present history that people can't find just turning on any episode of anything on history. Well, let's be honest. There's no history on history channel anymore, but on the military channel, etc. So um, first and foremost, let's just get our audience you know, familiar with you and um, what you do and how you, how you got hooked up with Goodyear? Well, uh, it's a fairly long story uh, that I'll shorten for your audience. Uh, I, uh, I've been with Goodyear for 43 years and uh, all that time with the airships, with the Goodyear Blimp fleet. Uh, it's been a, re- a remarkable experience for me uh, to watch the, the program uh, grow, expand, change as it has, uh, it's really the, the airship of today is uh, has a uh, resemblance to the airships of yesterday, but uh, only a physical, physically outward-looking appearance. Uh, there's been so many technological updates and changes that that there um, um, can bear, rarely be compared as the same kind of blimp that was flying even five, ten years ago. Now, I did a short stint of about three years in Long Beach, California, and uh, through my travels on the 405, I believe it was, um, you guys actually, I don't know if you still do, but at the time back between 01 and 03, you had an airship docking station right along the freeway in Los Angeles County, correct? That is correct. Uh, We actually still have a base there. It's in Carson, California, right right where those two freeways meet, Uh, and uh, the, uh, the base has been there for several decades now. Uh, and it's, it's like I said, it's there today. And you know, it's one thing when you see the uh, Goodyear blimp on TV. Um, as at least you know, a lot of a lot of uh, people know it from is the uh, overhead shots of football events and sporting events. And you know, some people may have had the the luxury and benefit of seeing it at an air show or something. But when you're just driving on your daily commute, and that 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 uh, tow station or tie down station is really is pretty close to the, the freeway. And so when that, when the blimps there docked, you can get a real uh, feel, especially in that creeping along at six mile an hour, as you do in LA traffic, you can get a real sense of the size and the scope and the, um, the amazement of, of that technology. Uh, yeah, that, that's true. Each of our bases, <clears throat> excuse me, each of our bases been, 
in Florida and in California and, and even here in Ohio uh, have observation areas where people can are welcome to come park and watch the airship take off and land. And in some cases, like in California, you could see it out on the mast when it's not flying because uh, in, in uh, Florida and in, uh, in Ohio, it's a possibility it could be in the hangar, um, uh, especially up here in Ohio where the weather can be a little brutal. What's the top cruising speed of the uh, airship? Well, let me give you a few a few uh, statistical uh, facts here, some information. Sure. Uh, first of all, I'll I'll, I'll step, take one step back and say we use the term blimp uh, here uh, because it is so popular and it is a common uh, a name, a common term. The Goodyear blimp isn't something that that we want to uh, dispose of in terms of a name, uh, but in technicality, it is not a blimp. It's actually a semi-rigid airship now. Uh, we redid our entire fleet over the last 10 years. Um, excuse me, after the last six years. Uh, first launched our first semi-rigid in 2014. Uh, the next one in 2016 and the last, uh, the third and final replacement in the fleet was in 2018. And that's, uh, those are wing foots one, two, and three. Now these are, as I mentioned, they are actually are semi-rigid. They're Zeppelin designs. And uh, but we built them at our base in Wing at Wingfoot Lake in Suffield, Ohio. Now, obviously, we don't want to get too mired down in the technical talk, but just um, I don't know the quick synopsis. What's the primary difference between a blimp and a semi-rigid structure uh, aircraft? Well, I, I'm so I'm so glad you asked because that that is really the difference between a semi-rigid and a blimp. The blimp has no framework whatsoever inside so, the envelope. So it's basically just a, a, a balloon. It's a balloon that's, that keeps its shape by pressure. Uh, the only uh, solid structures are those that are on the outside of that envelope. There's a set of uh, battens on the nose uh, to keep it rigid. Uh, there's, uh, of course, the gondola and the tail fins, so on and so forth, that kind of thing on the outside attached to the envelope. On the semi-rigid, it actually has a partial frame, and that frame goes from the, uh, uh, the center line up. And it's a series of uh, triangular uh, uh, structures that are connected. Those are uh, made up of, of uh, carbon fiber, uh, connected by longerons, which are made up of aluminum. And uh, if anybody has any interest in how one of these is built, you can you can uh, go to your favorite search engine and tap in the Goodyear blimp time lapse, and you'll probably should come up with a, a real nice about a three about a three minute video. It shows you how quickly how we put them together. Although I will add, it took us a lot longer than three minutes. And as always, anytime we have someone on the uh, uh, the podcast, on the website, WTSPWorldWar2.com, the particular page for the episode, i.e. The, the page for this episode, we include any pertinent um, links to websites. So I will track that video down. I will post it for you guys. So you can just simply go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, find the page for this interview, and all the links will be there so that you guys can enjoy the uh, time-lapse footage of that. Real quick question. I'm going to make a assumption primarily out of safety. I would assume that um, on the inside structure of the semi-rigid um, blimp, um, are those areas partitioned off so that there's some, you know, um, I guess safety involved case, the unlikeliness that there is a puncture. Obviously, you don't want the whole thing to deflate. I would assume that there's partitions in there so that if kind of one section does, almost like a ship has uh, areas cordoned off. Well, let me explain. You mean like a sort of like a uh, uh, containment areas? Uh, actually, no. Uh, what we do is th th there's uh, about 297,000 cubic feet of volume, and about 85% of that roughly is going to be filled with the non-flammable gas helium. Okay. Uh, within that within that confined uh, envelope, you'll have uh, in these airships you'll have two primary uh, ballonet bags, if you will. That's a French word basically for balloon. And uh, in those balloons, <clears throat> inside the envelope uh, is air. And so you, you, what you don't want is you don't want a complete envelope full of helium because as the gas contracts and expands, that would, that would cause a, a physical problem. Uh, so the airbags can be uh, expelled. The air can be expelled. It can be added by fans. And so you're making up those that volume change, if you will, sure. which can occur from temp temperature and altitude and, and, and that sort of thing, even sunlight, superheat from the sun. Uh, that type of thing. Uh, but inside, you'll have the framework, which is what the uh, gondola underneath is attached to. 
and then if you had it, if you did have, as you mentioned, you, your original question was if you had a puncture, there's so much volume there that you're not going to really lose that much over a short period of time. And uh, what you're more concerned about is the purity of the gas as opposed to a total deflation. So you're, you're concerned that the gas will get mixed with air and that loses its purity, it loses some lift that way. So every single day, uh, usually uh, two or three times a day, uh, we have uh, monitors that tell us what the gas is doing. So if we see any sort of a, any sort of a drop in that purity, uh, then we realize that there may be a leak somewhere and then we track that down and we repair it. Uh, a lot, there's a, there's a consi considerable amount of maintenance with an airship of this sort, we have a lot. We have a, a fully trained staff of mechanics and technicians, and and uh, and of course our pilots that are all trained to keep an eye out for that stuff, plus to prepare it and bring it back to to top speed or, or top uh, uh, purity whenever whenever we uh, need to. And what is the uh, top speed in cruising out? Oh, well, first and foremost, I guess what's the top speed of the blimp, and then what is the highest altitude you guys would? What I guess what's the preferable sailing on that for altitude? Sure. Uh, we really, uh, you know, remember, airships can go a lot higher than, than what we do, but we really don't want to go be uh, below much. Well, we don't go below roughly 1,100 feet uh, uh, from the ground. Uh, and what we try to do is stay below 2,500 feet. Now, our optimal altitude is right around that 15 to 2,000 foot level, uh, primarily because what we do, our mission is public relations and advertising and doing that, that type of thing, goodwill work. Um, and so we want to make sure people know we're up there. Sure. I mean, if you uh, flew out of sight, it would negate your cause. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let's get a little bit into the history. Um, let's go back. You tell me, uh, hundred years, 150 years. When was, uh, I guess, how did the first idea of the blimp come to be? And, um, let's get a little history on the uh, blimp and the uh, good years involvement. And then, um, We'll drift into, uh, no pun intended, we'll drift into World War II. Uh, well, the airship, airships have been around for uh, quite a while, as you, you probably r realize. Uh, of course, a lot longer than fixed wing. Uh, when, uh, when people wanted to fly, uh, one, of the, one of the first ways they figured that out was through gases and, and heated air that was lighter than the atmosphere around them, so they'd float. And so floating was the first, really the first form of flight that I, that, you know, that most of us are aware of. Uh, but the world really was getting into this, the French, the Germans, uh, you know, the English, and, and of course, uh, the Americans here. Uh, so the, the idea of figuring out how to, say, fly across the Atlantic uh, was really first attempted, uh, unsuccessfully, but first attempted by airship um, in, uh, you know, in, in the, in uh, the early part of the, uh, the uh, 20th century, uh, right around 1912. Uh, after that, the different uh, uh, attempts to fly uh, culminated, you know, became mixed in with lighter than air, kind of with fixed wings sort of taking more of, the, more of the, the stage, if you will, and that's, of course, led to Lindbergh going across the solo, across the Atlantic in, in 1927. Uh, but the uh, Army and the Navy, the United States Army, the United States Navy, uh, we're both uh, uh, using lighter-than-air vehicles, airships. Uh, Goodyear was building some of those along with balloons uh, for them uh, all the way through World War One. Matter of fact, the first uh, the first uh, uh, class of United States Navy airship pilots was trained right were right in uh, Ohio here at Wingfoot Lake. Uh, our, our hangar there was built in 1917. Uh, it uh, uh, it was started out at 200 feet in order to build balloons and small airships, that type of thing. But it was quickly expanded to 400 feet and right up into World War II when it expanded again and it made it 800 feet, which is where it's at today. And as time went by, um, obviously the concept of um, using airships during World War One, not only why. Well, I guess the primary purpose would probably have been for observation just because of how quiet they are. Obviously, we had rudimentary biplanes, but you could hear those things coming. I'm sure um, airships were used in great effect for um, observation and uh, intelligence gathering. Uh, they, they were. And, and of course, you may, you may know that even in the Civil War, hot air balloons were used for observation. Uh, so that there's a lot of uh, history behind getting a, a better view of the enemy. 
that was really something that that uh, and these type of craft were very important for that. Um, uh, and we can talk about that and uh, the primary um, uh, uh, contribution to that when when we get into into the W W2 period. But uh, the the idea of having an, an, a tactical advantage from the air uh, it was you know was obvious I think to every military person every military leader sure. uh, in the world and it didn't take very long to figure that out yeah I mean uh, prior to the advent of um, you know airships you're basically limited to the highest topography around you know uh, taking the high ground both for uh, right. defensive purposes and for observational purposes. But, you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like you said, you know, I, it's so crazy to think, you know, especially nowadays with the way technology are, and you know, and I'm sure my, the uh, part of the audience who also participates in civil war living history saying, yeah, clearly guy get with it. But it, I never even for a moment considered airships and hot air balloons being used during the civil war. Well, and now airships themselves, but, but I hot air balloons, into that, but but hot air balloons, yes, uh, and and of course, uh, lighter than air um, uh, balloons were also becoming, uh, I think, a little more known towards the latter part of the of the nineteenth century, but uh, uh, certainly hot air balloons were were around earlier earlier than that. Uh, but when when you talk about the uh, not thinking about it or not it not being something in the forefront. That's kind of the story of the uh, Goodyear blimp in World War II. Uh, very important, uh, very uh, uh, very significant in that effort, but probably one of the most untold stories of of World War II. Well, why don't you take us down that road? I think I can think of no one better to tell that untold story. And let's start here with our audience. Um, so I guess take it where it begins. What year? How early in World War II did they start working on the uh, on the equipment? Were we talking thirty nine, or was it after we got involved in around you know forty two? Well, you might want to might want to know that uh, of course Goodyear was building airships and selling them to the military, as I mentioned earlier, all the way from nineteen seventeen nineteen eighteen uh, until nineteen sixty. So. So there's a, a long history here of them building airships for the military, and through throughout that time period, of course, the war was a, a major, uh, you know, major uh, factor right right in the middle of that that time period. Um, so they were, uh, and you might might be familiar with these aren't blimps, but the rigid airships USS Akron and the USS Macon. Now everybody's familiar with the Hindenburg. Yep. Uh, because of that major disaster, uh, the German uh, uh, rigid airship. Uh, was the Zeppelin airship? Uh, did, you know, it was destroyed. Uh, primarily, uh, the primary with that was the was the hydrogen gas for the most part. Um, and uh, Goodyear uh, and uh, I'm sorry, the Navy rather, never used uh, hydrogen. They they only used helium in their large airships. Now the Akron and the Macon were were uh, uh, humongous, uh, rigid ships that were meant to be quote unquote aircraft carriers in the sky. And so they were. Their purpose uh, was to uh, carry a small aircraft that could be launched and recovered, uh, and then to and and to carry whatever else was needed. Uh, of course, the, the 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 I guess the I, I don't know if irony is the right word or timing, but uh, the whole airship program, the whole rigid airship program, was already gone by the time Pearl Harbor came around. And so uh, uh, when when Goodyear was making airships, they were making blimps as well. Now, most of the blimps, the, the, the real purpose of the blimps are the earlier blimps. Uh, there was a couple purposes, but one of the primary purposes was for pilot training. And so they weren't, they were not really looking at uh, uh, small blimp fleets as anything more than advertising and then for the military for pilot training and maybe some close coastal patrol. Uh, but it expanded uh, when the war came along. It's a, their usage and their their purpose expanded for the war. But and then, like I said, by that time the rigid airship program was already gone. So the rigid airships, that's why you, you never see them involved in, in in anything related to World War II. Well, follow up question to that, and then I want to rewind, go back in history a little bit because um, my audience may be kind of wondering the same thing I am, and that's transition. But real quick, um, using airships for pilot training, that kind of seems a little counterintuitive because of the speed difference. Was the thought behind that 
basically to teach them the fundamentals of lift and um, using you know the flaps and the ailerons and all that before they got up to full speed or ah. or was there because of well, aircraft shortage? Well, no, no, I'm sorry. You're right to go back if if that's what you were thinking. When I said pilot training, I was talking about blimp pilot training. Oh, okay. Um, and not and not air, not for airplanes. No. Um, well, no. When I actually when I was thinking about going back, um, when people hear Goodyear, we automatically think bicycle, uh, motorcycle tires, bike tires back in the early days, and obviously automotive tires and Jeep tires. Um, was Goodyear, was there research and development doing other things? Or I guess my kind of the question in the forefront of my mind is what led them to getting into um, air, aircraft to begin with? Was the, the um, airships made from rubberized material? What, I guess, what got Goodyear interested in that whole aspect to begin with? Well, uh, back, uh, it really started, uh, I guess, in earnest. I mean, it's difficult to pin down when something actually starts because sure. it could be when did somebody come up with the idea and when did somebody start acting on it. But um, the the airship program itself, the blimps uh, with Goodyear, really started uh, right around 1916. Uh, and the, the idea that, uh, remember the fabrics that are used for tires, mm -hmm. uh, which you want to keep from leaking air, Yep. You know, uh, right. airtight might be a generous term in those days, but you wanted them to keep, uh, you didn't want them to be leaking air. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, they, they, uh, uh, naturally one of our, uh, uh, our leaders, um, PW Litchfield, who was very much interested in lighter than air. Uh, he thought that was really, he was a yachtsman for one thing, and he just thought they were graceful, but there was also obviously a military purpose. Uh, the, uh, the army, uh, was more heavily involved in the, than the Navy in the beginning, but then that eventually switched around. Uh, but they were, uh, they were, uh, uh, you know, it's funny. You, you have a thought and a question. You think it's really a good one, but then there's a, a minor phrase that said that makes you think, Oh, obviously my question of what got them into hot air balloons and aircraft is you have a company whose sole purpose is inflatable materials, airtight materials. So obviously they would right. take that transition into hot air balloons and blimps. And so, you know, you think you have a, a great question, but then it's the simplest thing. It's like, oh yeah, it makes perfect sense. Right, and and fact, and Goodyear did want to get into that that business, you know, aviation business, and that was one of the ways they did it. Um, and and in fact, the first envelope that they made was for a man named uh, Melvin Vanneman, and he he actually built his own airship. He but Goodyear provided the envelope. Uh, he wanted to fly across the Atlantic Ocean, and that was 1912. That same year, the Titanic went down. So that's how far back, you know, this, these ideas of, of uh, flying long distances and, and, and sometimes in luxury. I mean, uh, the, the thought was these were luxurious cruisers that could be used for passenger uh, uh, gliners, like, like ocean liners, but in the sky. And, of course, moving a lot faster, going across the ocean in a lot, lot short, uh, short bit of time. And I'm sure not only the military, but I'm sure the United, well, whatever the early adaptation of the United States Postal Service was probably thinking, hey, here's a way we can, you know, transport mail coast to coast a lot quicker than, you know, train or the way it's going now. So I'm sure there's all kinds of uh, industries and interested parties in the concept of, hey, what can this technology do to improve our livelihood? And with that being said, you touched earlier on the one we all know, which was the Hindenburg. Um, right. Was the Hindenburg, was that kind of the leader of the concept of using um, airships as um, kind of, I don't want to say commercial, but I guess commercial, uh, you know, transportation? Or was there a lot of a lot of uh, other companies out there doing it? And did that industry suffer severely after the Hindenburg crash? Did people just kind of get scared of using um, that form of air travel? Well, you're kind of dipping into an area that is difficult, I think, to define because the Germans were always into, I mean, they were early on, you know, Count von Zeppelin, everyone, at least if they don't recognize the story, they somewhat recognize the Zeppelin name. Sure. Uh, and, and he, of course, was interested in airships. I know the Germans used those in military aspects to some degree. And, and I think that something like the Hindenburg was, in my opinion, more of a... Uh, a vehicle for, if you will, propaganda yep. than, than anything else. Uh, and so it was brought across the ocean and brought to New York, uh, and everyone knows, you know, how that ended. But the, 
but the uh, the idea that that an airship can produce emotions in people is is not lost on anyone uh, and you 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 know you hope those emotions are are good and fun and and we know that they are with the Goodyear blimp we we often often fly into towns and get uh, just thousands of people to come and visit and take a look at it because it's something so unique and so quite frankly beautiful to watch uh, that it's it's it makes it it makes it a unique aircraft you're mentioning the uh, Hindenburg flying to New York and I believe a lot, you know most people know this but maybe some of the younger audience doesn't that atop the Empire State Building that what appears to be an antenna the original use for that was supposed at least what I've heard was intended to be a docking station for zeppelins and and air, airships well, I think that's a yeah, that's a little that's an, another one of those stories that might be a bit of a misnomer. Uh, the, I, the mast was put up there; it was never used. Okay, it was never used for that. Never, it it was. I think one of the ideas was to to heighten the the building. Uh, I, that I that makes more sense. <laughs> so they, yeah, hey, we don't want to build any more building here, but we we're going to put a airship mast up there, and now we've got this. Now you can add that to the footage. Uh, so uh, uh, not 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 probably a realistic yeah, kind of a, of a of a, 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 a structure anyway, at least not in in how I, I I view it. So Goodyear and World War II, we we started to touch on briefly before we rewound a little bit. But you're saying that um, prior to World War II, World War One, it was used for uh, blimps were being used for um, pilot training. Um, but obviously, World War II came around. We had faster, you know, uh, more maneuverable forms of um, air combat vehicles. What was um, the airships and the blimps and um, that being used for during World War II? Yeah, now you get into that uh, that great untold story, I think. Um, the uh, in, in uh, As I mentioned, Goodyear was already building airships for the Navy. By this time, the United States Army was no longer using blimps or any, any, any form of airship. And so the the United States Navy had something in the neighborhood of five or six airships uh, in their in their fleet. Uh, Goodyear had built those over the years. Uh, not a single one of those was on the West Coast on December 7th in 1941. Now, uh, when Pearl Harbor was attacked, it uh, obviously brought the United States into World War II. Uh, the, the Navy turned to Goodyear uh, and asked them, because they had already had a business relationship in that, in that sense, and asked them, of course, to start ramping up airship production because they were getting requests from all around the world from their commanders to send them blimps. And uh, uh, the, the the one area that they really wanted one first was on the West Coast. Well, Goodyear had an advertising airship out there. Uh, the Resolute was sitting in uh, in, in Los Angeles. Uh, the Resolute had uh, a nice Goodyear emblem on the side, had, was, was promoting uh, lifeguard tires at the time. That was the... The brand type, and uh, uh, was an L ship. An L ship is somewhat smaller than a GZ20, but but it's uh, it's good for for close range flights, coastal patrol, that type of thing. And so they asked, and it was similar to the type of airships that the the, the, the Navy was using uh, in, on the East Coast. So they asked Goodyear if they could uh, take that over and operate it to help patrol the coast because they were concerned of an invasion of the West Coast from the, by the Japanese. They were also confirmed, concerned about, if not an invasion, then just shelling of harbors, Long Beach, that type, San Francisco, that type of thing. Uh, and in fact, two of the oil fields on the West Coast in California were shelled by submarine activity. Uh, with the, uh, uh, a couple of the only examples of, of the United States mainland being actually attacked uh, during that war. Uh, and then, uh, uh, so the, uh, of course, Goodyear uh, cooperated with that. Uh, this is some by some people's count. This would, is the is considered the first time the the uh, a letter of mark or uh, or uh, uh, what they call the privateering act uh, was invoked, uh, where they uh, which they hadn't done since the War of 1812. And of course, back then it was it was a a, a commercial uh, ship, sailing ship might be taken over by the United States Navy. Uh, you know, they pay for it, uh, but sure. uh, they, they use it for, for whatever purposes that a, that a war might, might uh, you know, uh, predict or, or, or might uh, dictate. 
And so uh, the uh, the uh, Resolute uh, was uh, taken over by the Navy. It was uh, repainted to, as an L4, as the L4, and uh, uh, the uh, uh, Goodyear advertising on the side was was painted out. No. Uh, and actually, in photos, you can actually still read through the thin paint and see the silhouette. And see, and see the, yes, you can still see it because when you're working with lighter than air, you, you don't want to put a lot of weight on the blimp. Sure. And I think every one of us knows what a gallon of paint weighs. Yeah. And if you put a hundred gallons of paint on something, you've got some, you're dealing with some real, you know, real cargo there, if you will. And that, that's wasted lift. Uh, so uh, they, uh, they did, uh, they actually uh, inducted the crew, the, the Goodyear ground crew at the time into the Navy. Um, and as you know, there was a lot of that, of course, necessary after Pearl Harbor. Uh, and then Goodyear started cranking out a few of these L ships, uh, but mostly they were making uh, K ships. And the K ships are, are a larger airship meant to go longer distances for for more uh, uh, more than just coastal patrol. Uh, they were uh, also used to escort convoys across the ocean to help them protect against primarily U-boat attack. Well, that was the question I was going to ask about the Resolute being used as a um, observation or a lookout tower, if you will, for the uh, West Coast. Um, back in 1942, 1943 technology, how long could an airship stay aloft before it had to come back down for any sort of refueling? Well, uh, that's, a, that's a difficult question. I, it's almost a question that can't be answered because airships are so susceptible to winds and conditions. Um, I know that on a GV-20, which is sort of a hybrid between an M-ship and, and an L-ship, uh, the GV-20, which was the closest thing in the last 25 years, you know, to, to what they were using in the, uh, that was still flying up until just two years ago, uh, that they were using it during the war, uh, the GZ-20 could go up for 10, 12, 14 hours. Well, that's the answer and we need. So, what I was getting yeah. at is clearly that would be the ideal aircraft because, one, as we inter- we said earlier, they're, they're damn near silent, especially at that altitude. You're not going to hear them. But, two, they can stay up longer than patrol planes, and you're not burning through as right. much fuel you know, which during the war effort, especially that early on, uh, things being as short and, um, you know, as important as it was, that serves two great qualities as an observation aircraft is one, it's silent, and two, the longevity in which you can stay aloft without needing to come back and refuel. And so you're saving materials, you're saving gas, and you're staying up longer and uh, being able to cover a wider range. Uh, yes, and, and, and the the purpose for the K-ships during those uh, convoy escorts was really to keep an eye out for enemy shipping, uh, particularly, as I mentioned, U-boats, because they were just, they were just wreaking havoc mm-hmm. in the North Atlantic uh, against American shipping and all, everybody's shipping actually. Yep. Uh, and, and uh, when, uh, especially with Lynn lease at the time before the United States actually entered the war uh, where they were shipping supplies to where uh, uh, we were shipping supplies by ship to uh, England, uh, to help them basically survive, um, then uh, getting those sunk, uh, you know, that was loss of a lot of life. That was loss of a lot of material. Uh, the what what would happen then during the during the war when that started? And Goodyear and Goodyear was building these airships, and, and in fact they built somewhere around 100 and, 135 of these K ships throughout World War II, and they sent them uh, to, to different places. They were dispatched to to places like Moffett Field. Uh, Lakehurst, and then operated out of there. But during the time between the L ships and the K ships, uh, the uh, especially the K ships on the convoy escorts, uh, the shipping numbers are are incredible. Uh, they uh, they uh, escorted some eighty nine thousand vessels uh, uh, during the war, and not a single sea vessel was lost when they had an escort, uh, air an air sort of if you will an air cover uh, for observation by a Goodyear built uh, Navy airship. And let's not also forget the added bonus of literally a 360-degree panoramic view from that gondola when it comes to observation. Right. And, and one of the things that, that these, these crews would take with them sometimes was just binoculars and a radio. Uh, uh, stories uh, do expand out to hunting rifles and <laughs> things of that sort. But we always want to remember that those airships were not attack. They were not meant for that. They were simply meant to report to the Navy, hey, I see something. We, we've got a, we've spotted a, a periscope uh, wake 
you know, obviously they might not see the periscope itself, but you can see a way because in those days the submarines would have to come up yep. and you know, raise their periscope, get a bearing so they know where to fire or what they're firing at. And, uh, and being able to give the Navy a heads up like that. And of course, anything over the horizon that the ship on the, on the surface couldn't see, the blimp could see. And so they could, they could also say, we're, we're seeing something uh, off in the distance. And then at, at that point, it would be up to the Navy's surface ships to either uh, chase it away or hopefully sink it. Uh, but at the very least, try to avoid it if, they, if, that, was their, if that was their goal. Now, were most of the um, convoy ex, ex, es, escorting done in the Atlantic, or was any of it used in the uh, Pacific Theater of Operations? Uh, to be honest with you, only, uh, that I, only significant uh, convoying I know of is in the Atlantic. Yeah, uh, I I know that they had they had the ships out as far as Gibraltar in Spain, uh, and uh, and of course up and down the coast uh, of the eastern coast seaboard, they went all the way up from Canada down into South all the way to the tip of South America to score the coastlines because there were supply lines there, and uh, there was certainly submarine activity, um, and the uh, the only known. Uh, encounter of a of a blimp with a submarine was just off the coast i believe of florida and and someone can correct me if i'm wrong on that but i believe it was off the coast of florida uh and it uh, it did not uh, go well for the blimp they oh. weren't meant to be attacking <laughs> oh absolutely not they saw an enemy and uh, as story goes they saw the enemy and for whatever reason they fired upon it uh might be because they thought they didn't have time to to get you know, get help out there, and they didn't want it to get away. Uh, but uh, uh, not not the not the not the thing that they were assigned to do. But. Now, I would assume the gondolas back in were basically constructed of a uh, light plywood, much like the gliders we use. No, well, actually, uh, uh, pretty much uh, like uh, sheet metal. You know, um, uh, just thin metal, something like a in fabric, a bit bit like an airplane airplane wing. Okay. No. Uh, they, obviously, uh, you got to keep it as light as possible. Um, and and the, that, that actually, that was the way the, air, the gondolas were made all the way through the 50s and 60s as well. Really? What point yeah. were, where, yeah. are they, where are they currently made from? Uh, now they're made out of composite materials. Sure. Very strong, very, very light. Um, matter of fact, if, uh, just to, to give your, uh, your listeners something to do uh, when, when we're able to again, and you know, of course, now we're uh, we're like everyone. We're, we're we're staying at home. We're doing our part. We're uh, you know we're, we're we're contributing what we can to make sure that this uh, this current crisis passes with as few a few deaths as possible. Uh, but uh, during uh, 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 when we are back to some normalcy, the Smithsonian has two airship gondolas at their Udvar Hazy facility in Chantilly, Virginia. One is the Pilgrim. That's the first, basically the quote-unquote first public relations blimp, the Pilgrim, a very small gondola. People get a kick out of seeing that. And it sits next to a GZ-20 model from the Columbia, which which is circa 1975. And uh, you'll see that, uh, you know, they're not that dissimilar, except in size. And, and maybe a little bit of, and in sophistication, but then you leap forward to what we're doing now, and those gondolas, which is, there's nothing, there's nothing in a museum right now because we're still flying them, but uh, the gondola today is a considerably more sophisticated and advanced uh, 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 structure uh, than than what was being flown anything previous to that. As far as you know, are there any museums that have an example of the actual blunt material on display? Um, blimp material, um, trying to think, you know, there's, there are other airships in, there's one in Pensacola at a museum there. Uh, there's one at the aircraft museum in New England. Uh, there's a few of these around. There's one at the museum in California. I think it's called the aviation museum of the West. And forgive me if I've got that name wrong. It's out in the Los Angeles area. Uh, I don't know that any of them have any fabric. Uh, the fabric has changed over the year. It really started out as basically cotton with a rubber rubberization process put into it, um, kind of like the tires. Um, you know, and the um, 
they eventually they moved into to, to different materials, but after World War II, they're almost uh, almost solely synthetic, uh, for the most part, uh, Dacron. That that was the most pro, pro, uh, proficient uh, uh, material uh, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and even actually until we retired our last one just two years ago. Uh, the Dacron fabric was with the neoprene uh, infused into it uh, was a pretty uh, efficient uh, and sturdy envelope. And now we use a uh, polyester uh, with uh, with a uh, Dupont Tedlar film, uh, and it's a very again still very sturdy and and very light, uh, but just a different different type of material. Continuing down my road of usage of bad puns, you said solely. Um, one of the things living historians do, um, especially those who reenact the Pacific Theater of Operations, uh, when it comes to the acquisition of reproduction boondockers, um, they've been around for a while, but just recently, again, there's a company called At The Front. They just finally found a company to recreate the corded souls. Now, Goodyear Pro... Goodyear actually made all the soles for the, well, not all the soles for all the service shoes, but they made a majority of the soles for the service shoes and particularly the boondockers. And um, a lot of people may not realize the tires back then, because it had that cotton threaded, that cording through it, that Goodyear actually had, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I believe I was just doing some cursory reading before we started about the uh, rubber shortage at the beginning of World War II that Goodyear did actually have their own cotton fields because they relied so heavily on the cotton for the cordage inside the tire, and they actually used that same technology, particularly in the Marine Corps boondockers. And like I said, us living historians, we are so um, we try to get our uniforms, the reproduction stuff, to be as accurate as possible. That there are company, a company now that who actually found someone who recreated the soles for the boondockers, the Marine Corps service boot all the way down to having the cording in it. And it's so crazy to see that technology and, and to actually think that there is threads of cotton cord going through the soles of these shoes. Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, companies, you know, uh, American companies are, are actually amazing if you think about it. Uh, some of the products that were made uh, throughout the, the centuries, and, or centuries, I'm sorry, throughout the decades uh, that, that we use in everyday, uh, everyday life that you don't really think about how they came about or, or why they came about. Um, and, and for instance, uh, not many people know, because I know you kind of like to touch on that little known history. And that, I think that's very, very cool, actually. Uh, there's because there's so much history that isn't told uh, that is, I think, very fascinating. Uh, so a show like yours, I think, is very, very good for bringing out that kind of uh, interest in people and that kind of uh, shedding light on things that they sometimes don't even think about. But for instance, uh, not many people realize uh, that Goodyear actually started transcontinental trucking. And they actually did it for not the reason to start a truck line, but the reason to show people who, who might do a truck line that you could run on pneumatic tires. Now, uh, this kind of came home to me a little bit. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie 1917. It's on my know. list. Sadly, I haven't seen it uh, yet, but... Um... Hopefully, it's, it's, with the situation well we're in, that they will put it out on on-demand quicker than they were anticipating so that I can see it. Quicker. I would expect so, yeah, because we saw it a couple months ago, I think, when it came out. And uh, uh, one of the things I'm watching the movie, and I'm sitting there, and, and, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of I'll loop this into the story here in a moment. But I'm watching, and, and there's a scene where he, uh, one, of this, one of the soldiers has to jump onto a truck, you know, a military truck, an sure. army truck. And, uh, and it's in the mud, you know, they're helping them push this mud, this, this, this truck to the mud. Well, I noticed that the tires on the truck are solid rubber. Mm-hmm. They're not pneumatic tires. Well, that's, and of course, we're talking 1917 and 1916. And so Goodyear, at, in 1916, launched a, a uh, I'm sorry, 1917, it launched a truck line called the Wingfoot but they did it because they wanted to show that you could do long haul heavy trucking on pneumatic tires, tires filled with air, something, you know, we all take for granted today. Uh, but you can imagine riding around on those solid rubber tires, how rough that might've been and, and uh, how, how difficult that would have been to get out of ruts and get out of mud and so on and so forth. So they, they put a fleet of these trucks together. Now, obviously these tires that they, 
that they uh, put on them, uh, you know, had all kinds of qualities that solid rubber tires did not have. And so that's an, you know, there, that was an advancement uh, back in, in the early part of the, of the 20th century. Well, not to mention and, gas mileage. I mean, when you take the amount yeah. of weight of those solid rubber tires, uh, one, the truck empty, it would get better gas mileage. But when that truck has more freight on it, you're cutting so much weight um, that you're saving potentially thousands of dollars, yeah. even back then, annually on uh, gas mileage just by cutting weight. Sure. And, and because now they can go further and, and, and be honest with you, more comfortably, and not, not, they weren't riding in luxury, but it was, certainly was more comfortable than the solid rubber tires. Uh, because they could do that, uh, they, would, they would staff these trucks with two men and they would put a bed in the back behind the driver. And, and voila, you have your first sleeper, sleeper cab. cab. <laughs> How late into World War II were uh, the airships, the blimps, being used for escorting? Uh, well, they were using escorting uh, in March of March of uh, basically, as I mentioned, the the uh, you know there's the escorting and then there's the con there's the there's the, the coastal patrol. I can't tell you when the first time an airship escorted a a vessel, but I can tell you that by uh, uh, by March of, of 1942 uh, that that. Ship the Defender. I'm sorry, the Defender. Not uh, by 1942, that ship, the Resolute, was in the Navy and doing its job. And uh, the the K ship production though had to be ramped up. So how how quickly they did that, I don't have stats on that. I couldn't tell you the date. No, I apologize. Uh, I guess my question didn't come through. I said how late into the war. I, I guess when was the cutoff point? When did they stop oh. using them for escorting? I mean, oh, uh, I got you. I'm sorry. I, no, I, no I you probably did say it. I just mis- misunderstood. Uh, the Gidja-built airships for the Navy were used all the way through to the end, uh, end of the way, and beyond, because they were continuing. They used uh, airships all the way through into 1960. Wow, so all the so way they, up through Korea working. and even into... Yes. Wow. Yeah. The last, well, the last airship was delivered to the Navy in 1960. The last airship I believe that they used in the Navy was 1962, because they eventually phased that out. Now, you remember, uh, now by now, there's different ways of of uh, looking for the enemy, uh, you know, satellites are going to mm-hmm. be coming more, you know, more of the thing. And, and, uh, uh, and so there wasn't as much need for that type of envelope, if you will, aerial envelope. Is there any other stories of World War II involving the uh, blimps that uh, come to mind that you want to share before we uh, wrap this, this segment of the history of the Goodyear blimp up? Well, there's uh, it, it, this one isn't particularly about, uh, uh, the blimps, but it is about Goodyear. Sure. Uh, and it's not, not so much a story, but maybe a piece of information because it Perfect. would require a little more uh, uh, research and to get the full story. But throughout the war, or at one point at least in the war, uh, Goodyear was contracted to make uh, fake vehicles mm-hmm. uh, to fool the enemy. For and I actually Army. think that's one of the coolest stories. Yep. <laughs> you know, if, if nothing else, totally entertaining. Because uh, you, you have them making uh, air-filled airplanes, you know, uh, inflatable mm-hmm. airplanes that from the sky, a bomber or a uh, uh, attack craft might mis- easily mistake for the real thing and then expend a lot of time and energy and ammunition uh, to basically flatten something that can be patched and put back up. Real quick, so. a quick history on that for those of you who are listening who aren't for, uh, familiar. We all know that Patton got in trouble for smacking the um, the private in the hospital who had um, combat fatigue, called him a coward, and then that happened in front of uh, some reporters and word got out. And so, you know, the military had to come down on Patton, and one of the things they did is they ha- they kind of had to take him out and suspend him a little bit, if you will, take him out of his normal um, procedure. But they wanted to utilize him all the while making him suffer because i mean let's be honest Patton was a bit of a narcissist and when he can't do what he wants to do he's not happy and so well, what do you do with a guy like Patton? you can't make him sit off the thing you got to use him to your advantage and so we knew that um operation overlord was coming up and one of the things that we did using the french resistance was misinformation how can we feed the germans misinformation have them move all their tanks all their troops further up north 
to make them think that we're preparing to land on a different part so that we can land out of Normandy with least amount of resistance. So what they did is they sent Patton over, and you got to forgive me, I can't remember the name of the town, but they sent him over and they made sure that he was seen. So that when they started sending out the misinformation to the Germans saying that the army is stationing in this area, they can easily find out, well, Patton's been seen around there. There's clearly got to be some truth to this and then that's where these Goodyear inflatable tanks came in these inflatable jeeps and there's great video and i'll try to post it along with this episode on youtube you can see like these uh army privates like literally picking up these tanks and and batting them back and forth like they're a giant uh, beach volleyball <laughs> and it was called the and, and so and it worked that is how we were able to land on normandy with the least amount of resistance that's why there was no tanks firing down on us because um they bought the ruse there's all these news articles and all these reports coming that Patton's seen in this area. All their airplanes are up doing uh, re- observation and recon. They're seeing all these tanks and all these airplanes down on the ground. Little did they know they were nothing more than uh, party favors. But yeah, and and as that was such a great feat of engineering, not only for Goodyear, but just the the idea that somebody somebody thought that up. Hey, I know. Let's do this. Yeah, let's, and, and something that would cost so little. Yeah, I mean, it couldn't have cost that much money to build a uh, an inflatable uh, vehicle versus a real vehicle, and of course, the time involved would be a lot shorter. And, and the logistics. So, and think, yeah, and I think it was always it was disinformation. You know, it was in order to uh, uh, confuse the enemy, if you will, uh, or at least to uh, you know get them looking in the wrong direction. And uh, and to expend resources because if they were going to fly there, they were using gasoline mm-hmm. to do it. Yeah, or, air, or aviation fuel. And it know, took to the it. smallest amount of logistics on our part and the smallest amount of manpower to inflate those things and set this thing up, send a couple hundred guys and, you know, a couple of crates for inflatable um, tanks and Jeeps and all that, and voila, you got an instant army. Yep, yeah, exactly. I would suggest, too, that there's a, there is a, and I don't know how easy it is to find these, uh, but there's a publication uh, out out there uh, that was uh, put out in April '46. This is after the war, of course, um, and uh, it was put out uh, written by a rear admiral of the United States Navy, uh, Rosendahl, and uh, or at least the preface was. So he he was you can say he didn't write the book, but he yeah he was acknowledging the book. He wrote the forward. Uh, yeah. What's that? He wrote the forwarder for it. Yeah, yeah. They they call it a preface, but it's the same basically the same thing. Uh, this was a publication. Uh, I don't know if I'd go as far as call it a book, but it's called They Were Dependable. And it's Airship Operation, World War II. Uh, and it goes from 41, and it covers the period from 41 to 45. And uh, there, it's so interesting because there are copies of, te- of telegrams uh, by Navy commanders around the world uh, at the, right after Pearl Harbor saying, send us blimps, we need them. They're, you know, they had some experience with them in World War One, apparently. Uh, and uh, there's a uh, there's a telegram by Roosevelt, uh, not telegram, but a, I'm sorry, a, 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 an order by uh, Franklin Roosevelt to uh, immediately increase the number of airships in the fleet. And this is within, I believe that was just within a week or ten days of Pearl Harbor. So you know, it wasn't a one of those uh, one of those afterthoughts. Uh, these they were obviously very important vehicles, and that's why I say. Yeah, you know, this is one of the the uh, probably the least told stories uh, of World War II. Um, and the people do probably know that, especially your listeners, I'm sure know how much damage the German U-boat was doing mm-hmm. in the Atlantic. Uh, it was devastating the supply lines and, of course, troop carriers and and everything else. You want to protect those, you know, those assets and. And you want to protect the, the lives, and you want to you know get that get that material to to your allies. So I think that that's that that would be a publication I would recommend that you're uh, if you really want to read something you probably haven't read before. Uh, I would see if you can find that. Absolutely, I'll see if I can track that down. You were talking about the uh, U-boats. One of the things that really helped us out and uh, hurt the Germans, obviously, one. Um, you, you hear the phrase, especially when it comes to uh, German cars, over-engineering. Well, when we finally started bombing these U-boat plants, the ones that were still up and running, their productivity and their production lines ran 
slower than ours did because of the quote-unquote over-engineering and how sophisticated some of their stuff was, whereas the American side, we kind of had the whole, um, you know, saying of keep it simple. Let's, you know, and you and I were talking po- uh, pre- previous to this interview, the simplicity and the effectiveness of the barrage balloon. And and to me, that's as simple as it gets, Yeah. Get a hot air balloon, you strap it to a steel cable, you hook it up to a Navy ship, you get them close enough together so it prevents air uh, strafing from airplanes. And if they do risk going through there, the cables would simply rip the wings off, problem solved. And that's a simple, mm-hmm. effective way to achieve uh, a need. When you, and, and you were talking about some other shows at the beginning of our interview, uh, our, our discussion here. And uh, when I was, uh, I, I, let's just say I'm older than 60. But when I was a young person, uh, I would uh, I, there was a show called Victory at Sea that my uh, my uh, father and I used to watch, and it was just old World War II footage, and it was some you know I was just fascinated with that. It was just so neat to see that the action going on there that the that these uh, you know, brave people were doing uh, out there in the middle of the ocean. Uh, and but one of the things. If you look at some of that old old footage, and it may not be exactly in that series, but in the old footage, every now and then I will glance and I will see an airship in the background. Just it's not part of the it's not meant to be a key of the shot. Yep. It's just out there, and and I always feel really proud of people. Sure. Uh, very uh, very uh, satisfied that I've managed in my career to be a part of that. Uh, a part of that that uh, um, you know we we think of ourselves a little bit as a as a family. Uh, if you've ever worked for an airship, then you you're part of that family, and you understand you know because they're they're like they're like big babies. Sometimes you're yeah. you're, you're taking care of them all the time. Uh, they they really attach themselves to you and you to them. You know we're talking about the inflatable material industry, and I was. Lucky enough and kind of honored enough, a couple months back, a friend of mine, a fellow uh, living historian, he was thinning out his collection, and he uh, gave me the option to buy first, um, the option to decline it, and I actually bought it. I have an original World War II invasion belt, life belt. They're inflatable. They had CO2 cartridges in it. And I haven't looked at the maker's mark, and I'm sure the the belt itself is manufactured by somebody else, but it would not strike me at a, odd at all if the inflatable bladder section of that belt was created or at least originally designed by Goodyear. Well, I can't say it was or wasn't, but I I can say I wouldn't be surprised either. Let's fast forward to modern times before I let you go. Um, Anybody who has been to a party city in the last year and a half has seen the signs. We've seen the news stories and I never knew this. I learned this. I never knew that helium was not a, was a non-renewable resource. And um, last well, it is a natural gas. Yeah. And last year there were stories about uh, shortages of helium and um, how some of the medical um, community were getting a little concerned because I guess they use helium when it comes to a lot of the um, medical equipment. Is the helium shortage, is that concerning um, in the um, airship community at all? Uh, not, well, not at this time. I mean, certainly any, any anything that might have a shortage that you, you need is going to cause some, you know, you're going to keep an eye on it. Sure. Uh, but it's mostly uh, for us, uh, we're not, it's not like we're uh, using uh, large volumes of gas every day. Once we put it in there, then it's only once a month or so, maybe twice a month that you're adding some. And so it's not, uh, it's not something every day, like you're, you're, you're fueling up your car or something like that. Uh, so it's not something that's affected us other than uh, the price may have gone up a little bit, but uh, it is a natural gas. It, it's I've derived from wells in Canada and Texas and, every, and other places, along with uh, some, so I think there's even some processes of taking it out of some rock I've seen. Hmm. So, uh, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's not hydrogen you can make, you can manufacture that. Sure. But then it's, but we've seen how that turned out. And that is not, yeah, Goodyear hasn't used hydrogen since 1925. And we're going back to that with good reason. We, we pioneered that safety factor with, by using helium. Before I let you go, Ed, is there any um, projects out there, any uh, websites, anything you want to promote for the audience as far as? Uh, the- you, yeah, go to our website, uh, GoodyearBlimp.com. Uh, I think that's probably, and, and of course, Goodyear Blimp is on Facebook page. We have a Facebook page and, and we have a lot of people that, 
join in our conversations and, and post photos uh, and that type of thing. But uh, so the two things, uh, Goodyear Blimp on Facebook and GoodyearBlimp.com on the web uh, where you'll get a lot, some more history and some more uh, current information as well. All right. Yeah, that's right. I have one more question. I, I forgot about for a second. Obviously the world's changed now, but prior to what we're going through now, um, just on average, you don't have to be down to the, the exact schedule, but how, how many flights would the uh, Goodyear blimps put in a year? Ooh, uh, was it more than we think, or the, they primarily just sporting? Probably. Yeah. It depends on what you mean by a flight. I mean, we do, depending on our assignments, we'll, we can do days where we're doing 30 minute passenger flights because we, we, we donate a lot to charity. Okay. And so the rides that go to charity have to eventually be honored. And so we, uh, yeah, so we may, we may do some days where we're doing 30 minutes flights all day. Where we're taking 60 or 70 people up. And then there might be days where we're doing, uh, of course, that's a lot of landings and takeoffs. Each one's a flight. And then there might be days where we're just doing a football game. Uh, we might, you know, and, and so that's one takeoff on landing. And so that's one flight, but it's an all day flight. That, that flight might last, you know, nine hours. Sure. Uh, so it, it's difficult to, to pin down without having to, without going back and looking at the log books and coming up with a number, which we have. I mean, I just don't have it at the top of my head. Oh, no worries. His name's Ed Ogden. I, I would say, I would, I would probably say you could probably count on uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds. Definitely, if not thousands. His name's Ed yeah. Ogden. He is the public mm-hmm. relations specialist for the Goodyear Blimp. Thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us tonight. I hope all things go well for you guys up in Ohio. You stay safe and um, hope you enjoy many more years working for the fine Goodyear company. Well, and you and your listeners stay safe, and uh, we'll all be back together when this is over. Thank you so much, Ed. This has been a Digital 410 production. (laughs) 